Thank you and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packwell. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of apostolic tradition that goes back to Jesus and his apostles. Now, of course, we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do that in a few ways. One, you can do like these nice folks have done by coming here to our studio audience in Arndale, Alabama. But if you can't do that, you can also call during the live broadcast. And the phone number, if you are in North America, is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but you have to use this number, country code one area code 205-271-2980, 205-271-2980. Or you can send us questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, we will take a look, first of all, at the implications of our Lord's commandment at, to his disciples at the Last Supper, saying, do this in remembrance of me. We'll also examine how Jesus announces his betrayal and how he identifies the traitor. Okay? Now, remember, we're going through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church, which you can get at EWTN's Religious Catalog. And to get a copy of it and join with us, follow along, you can just go to EWTNRC.com. You can get that book there. It's item number 81098. 81098. So, we are now on the chapter about the Last Supper. And we are dealing with that command I mentioned at the beginning here. When our Lord said, as a plural imperative, so he's commanding the group of apostles. Uh, in English, the singular and plural is not always quite as clear, but in a lot of other languages that are uh, conjugated, uh, it's very clear. In this case, uh, it's very clear that it's you plural, or as we would say in Alabama, y'all. Say it in Texas too. And it says, so do this in memory of me. And the, the fact that he says in memory of me, remember we talked about that. Do this comes from Old Testament legislation, Old Testament laws, on some of the sacrifices. 
that you do certain sacrifices. Sometimes you sacrifice them and they use a different word for that, zavach. And zavach means to slaughter as in an animal. And that doesn't apply to all the sacrifices because you don't slaughter uh, an animal in many of the sacrifices. And so instead they use the word do. You do the sacrifice. And our Lord uses that word. Secondly, he says, in memory of me. And I mentioned how in Leviticus 5 and lots of other passages we talked about last week that uh, the in memory of me is used in the Old Testament to refer to a type of sacrifice. It's a particular kind. They had peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, and memorial, remembrance offerings. Lehazkir in Hebrew. And so he's giving these signals. Now, something to recognize is that if he is commanding his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, he's telling them to sacrifice the Eucharist as a memorial sacrifice. So that's what he's telling them. And here's what's odd about that. In Judaism, one had to be a priest in order to offer the sacrifices. And to be a priest, you had to be born a priest. You could not, you could feel all the vocation you wanted, but if you were not born a Kohen, then you were not a priest. Kohen refers to a clan within the tribe of Levi. So this is something you had to be born. If your father was a priest, you could be a priest. If he wasn't, you couldn't. That's plain and simple. One of the things we should notice, remember we went some, a few months ago through the list of the apostles and not a single one of the apostles was identified as a Levite. None of them were Levites as far as we know. And none of them are identified as Kohanim, as, uh, as a Kohen. So they don't belong to either the tribe of priests and temple helpers, nor do they belong to the clan that is for the priests. And in fact, when we take a look at Jesus, that applies to him too. He is not from the tribe of Levi, nor is Jesus our Lord from the clan of Kohen. And this is very important. When we take a look at his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, we have those two genealogies of Jesus. His genealogy always goes back to the tribe of Judah not to Levi. And the Judahites were not uh, priests. And also, besides the genealogies, which are of St. Joseph, 
the angel Gabriel tells Our Lady that Jesus will sit on the throne of his father, David. So the angel Gabriel identifies that Our Lady would also be from the tribe of Judah and not a Levite. So this is something that is not for Jesus or his disciples. They are not the priests of the Old Testament. And yet we see that he tells them and commissions them, commands them, offer this in remembrance of me or do this in remembrance of me. That's his command. So that means he has the power to pass on priesthood because as we see in the letter to the Hebrews, what is key about a priest is that a priest offers sacrifice. Other people can preach. For instance, among the Pharisees, they had rabbis. But if the rabbi was not from the tribe of Levi and the clan of Kohen, that rabbi did not have the authority to offer sacrifices. He could preach and teach about the Bible. But so the preachers they had who were not priests, but you could not be a priest unless you were born in those tribes. And our Lord here is claiming to have authority to do a sacrificial act and to commission the 12 apostles to be priests and to offer sacrifice. Because again, always keep that in mind. Do this remembrance of me means to offer this as a memorial sacrifice. That's a priestly action. It's not an act of the laity in Israel, certainly not, and not in the church either. So what does that mean? If Jesus has the authority to give priesthood, he must be a priest. That's one thing. You can't give what you don't have. So that's one element. But it's not the priesthood of the Levites or the Kohanes. It is a priesthood of the new covenant. And that's something crucial that remember how he says when he consecrates the wine in the cup, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. So just as the old covenant at Sinai had this priesthood of the Levites initiated, because it was at Sinai that the Levites were designated to be the tribe of priests. They weren't that way before, but at, when they're at Mount Sinai, they're designated as the priests. You can see toward the end of chapter 32 of Exodus, for instance. Well, so also, as Jesus begins a new covenant, he starts a new priesthood that he has the fullness of that priesthood and he shares it with his disciples. Now, because our Lord Jesus 
gives his disciples a share in the priesthood so that they can continue to celebrate the Eucharist. That means that all generations will be able to eat his body and drink his blood. This is something that they will be able to do and fulfill the words he had spoken in John chapter 6 when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. So this is a very important moment of the Last Supper where he commissions the apostles to be able to do this. And this gift of the priesthood of Jesus Christ has been passed on all these generations. They've given from their generation to the next generation all the way on down the line to the present. That gift of Jesus' eternal priesthood. Jesus has a priesthood that is once and for all and he gives it to those who are ordained in his priesthood. He also gives a certain share of it. We have to talk about this at another time. In baptism, because all of us who are united to Christ are by baptism given a share in his priestly, prophetic, and kingly uh, roles. But there's a difference between the priesthood of baptism and the priesthood of ordination. Um, and that's, that's something for another discussion. I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus passes on that dignity of his eternal priesthood to his apostle at that moment. The problem is the apostles don't seem to fully grasp what it means to receive that priesthood. There's something that they still try to seek a dignity of their own making. They're still at the Last Supper, as we'll see as we go along with it uh, in the next couple weeks. The apostles at the Last Supper are still talking amongst themselves about which one of them is greater than the others. This is them trying to make their own dignity rather than appreciate the dignity that Christ has given to them. And this is not something that's come to an end because over the centuries, a lot of priests and bishops have tried to throw their weight around. And if they've been a priest or a bishop long enough, they sometimes have a lot of extra weight to throw around. And they, they try to emphasize their own dignity instead of focusing on the dignity of Christ and recognizing what that is. And you see that happen in different ways, but uh, the, the, the saints, the, the priests who become saints, understand that the priesthood is from Jesus and its dignity is from Jesus, especially because 
It's a priesthood that he exercises most poignantly on the cross when he offers himself. Because the cross is always the very basis for Holy Mass, for the Eucharist. And this is something that priests over the centuries need to constantly learn, that you don't focus on your personal dignity, you focus on who Christ is. And we don't know what they really fully understood at that time of the Last Supper. How did they comprehend our Lord's words? We can't speculate. Uh, you would end up psych psychologizing the apostles based on the text. And that is saying more than the text of the Bible tells us. So I don't, I don't psychologize them. But it is very important to note that the Gospels emphasize the importance of this Eucharist. In the first three Gospels, we see the Last Supper described. And in the fourth Gospel of St. John, there's a, an even longer teaching about the meaning of the Eucharist in John 6. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 has a very important description of the Eucharist. So they clearly did reflect on it and they came to understand more about its importance later. But at the Last Supper, we don't know exactly what they understood. And this oftentimes happens for priests in the present. Sometimes, even when you have years of study, you still don't understand fully what the priesthood is about. And you know, I suspect, because it's one of the mysteries, um, that you know we won't fully understand. I don't think of myself as fully grasping it. But the role of a priest today, a Catholic priest, is to constantly grow in deepening that understanding of the dignity Christ gives by bestowing his priesthood. And to learn to sink one's life with that dignity, reminding yourself of what Christ has given, what Christ does through you as a priest. It's a very important element uh, as Archbishop Sheen used to say that at the moment of the consecration, God the Father looks at a priest through Jesus-colored glasses because the priest is acting in the person of Christ and does so at all the priestly acts. So this is a very important part and something that the apostles failed to understand Many modern priests and priests through the centuries have had similar failures. And when there is failure, then we have to find a corrective so that we can improve and transform ourselves. And more importantly, let Christ transform us by his grace. Well, we'll take a little break and we'll come back and take a look at a another extremely important moment of the Last Supper, namely when Christ announced that he was going to be betrayed that night. So please stay with us.
okay. Uh, first, I want to remind you that we are going to have another EWTN family celebration that will be on Saturday, August 26th, 2023. And it'll be right here in Birmingham, Alabama at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex. If you're coming into town by uh, car, you probably go right by that because it's right near the junction of I-2059 and I-65, so it's real convenient. And if you want to come, please go to EWTN.com slash family celebration. Or if you prefer, you can call. The number is 1-800-447-3986. 1-800-447-3986. To register, now the event is free. It doesn't cost anything, but we just want to know who's coming and how many are going to be here to show up. So urge you to be here. Okay. All right. So now let's take a look at something that occurs in all four Gospels where Jesus announces his betrayal and he identifies the traitor. This is going to be very important for us. Of course, he distributed his body and blood to the 12 apostles, uh, whom he had just also ordained as priests and bishops. And they're the, the first bishops and, and priests, and all of them are there. And notice how, uh, how do we know that? Well, right after he has given them his body and blood, right after he institutes the Eucharist, we see in Luke, 22, verse 21 to 23, that our Lord says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it was that would do this. Okay, now, Let's take a look at that. First, he's just instituted the Holy Eucharist and he's just distributed communion and he says the hand of the betrayer is still on the table. And in fact, oftentimes, good artists will have the hand of Judas Iscariot on the table when they paint the Last Supper, to get, you know, it's little details like that that you look at carefully and pay attention to. And so let, let's, let's start off with that. And we see that the um, apostles are all there and they begin to question one another. And St. Matthew actually brings out the questioning a little bit more. Uh, in Matthew 26, verse 22, it says, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? We also see in Mark 14, verse 19, same thing. They began to be sorrowful and they say to him, Is it I? So 
This is what they are saying in the synoptics. And in John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, this is something very important. You know, they all express a certain uncertainty. There's a quality about this that we have to pay attention to. All of them were uncertain even about themselves. They didn't want to be the betrayers, but they were also aware that they had the capacity of treason against Jesus. They knew something of the weakness. Now they, again, boast a lot about, I'm the best apostle, I'm the greatest. And at the same time, they're aware of their weaknesses. And this is a uh, part of being human. And this uh, strikes me in uh, a, a couple of ways. First of all, you know, if they know that the betrayer is there at the table, you would think, I mean, I don't expect them to do the, the kind of investigation we do uh, with fingerprints and blood types and all this stuff. But if they said, one of us, wait a minute, nobody leaves the table till we find out who the traitor is. That would be logical. But I'm afraid the apostles are not being quite that logical. They're more worried that it's not themselves than they are. All right, we shut the doors, lock everybody in, and everybody sits here till we find out who it is, and then we take him outside. Something like that. Uh, okay, that's the Chicago interpretation. But it, uh, it is something that you almost get a sense that they are afraid to find out who the culprit might be. They don't take that step because they may not really want to know. And they may fear, you know, discovery. After all they're bragging about, I'm the, I think I'm the best. Jesus loves me more. No, no, no. I can't tell you what I saw up on Mount Tabor, but it was so cool and I can't say anything because God loves me better. No, they, they, after all that arguing about which one of them, they are afraid to investigate lest they discover something about themselves that might have treason within it. And I bring this up because, you know, when we are dealing with the modern crisis of the priest abuse, um, there was something like that going on. A lot of folks were afraid to find out, you know, if it's true. There might have been um, rumors here and there about one priest or another, and it seems that Folks were afraid to find out, you know, what was actually going on. And, you know, sometimes 
uh, we see that with both the sexual and some of the financial scandals that have taken place in the church, that people you know, have the same kind of uncertainty as the first 12 bishops. And as a result, with that uncertainty and fear, there is inaction. And that tragically happened with the sex abuse situation. Now, this is, there are other factors too in the modern situation, and, and we, we should be aware of some of them. A number of the, the abusers were sent for psychological treatment. And they would be sent back after treatment saying, okay, this guy is fine, he'll be okay now, you can trust him. And, and that wasn't the case in, in all circumstances. Many of the people were not able to be changed by going to a place where they could get psycho psychological analysis and you know, retraining and stuff. Some things just didn't click with that. But, so that, that's a factor as well. But there was just too often, uh, just, well, I heard there was something, let's just move them, and let's just send them some other place and see what happens, uh, you know, to the guy. Okay, so that was not any better than the apostles in action at the Last Supper when they found out that Judas, that somebody, one of them, was going to betray Jesus. And that kind of inaction uh, led to betrayal then, and it leads to betrayal now. And part of this, we, we, we need to pray about that. Bring this scene to our own meditation and realize, you know, are there times when I let things go? I, I, it's not only abusive priests. You can apply this to lots of other situations where some parents allow their children to, well, he's just young and they're just raging hormones or whatever, and some psychological issues just go on checked, uh, some sexual, some drug issues, just well, don't worry about it, it'll be okay. Uh, they'll grow out of it. When we have to take a look at these issues and when we neglect to take care of very important personal problems in people's lives, there are consequences that harm the whole family or in the case of a priest, can harm the whole church, the parish, not to mention the horrible harm that goes to the individual victim. That's the most important harm, but it has effects elsewhere too. So that's why we have to address these questions and learn from the failure of the apostles and try to make corrections. All right, well, we'll stop there and we'll come back and continue on with some more of the issues uh, related to the betrayal by Judas. So we'll take a look at that next week. <laughs>
Now we have, uh, so we'll take a look at some of your questions. I'm going to start off with a gentleman here in the studio audience. Sir, where are you from? From uh, Massachusetts, but I actually live in Maine now, but okay. that's where I was brought up in Massachusetts. Well, they're pretty close to each other, well, and they're both seven beautiful hours. places. So what, what's your question? Um, as you talked about um, growth in the priesthood, um, I was relating to it um, to as even as today, back in the days of the apostles, mm -hmm. uh, we have to stick to the sound doctrine or if we start interpreting things our own way, which is really a direct contradiction of the Bible, 2 mm -hmm. Peter 1.20, no mm -hmm. prophecy of scripture made by private interpretation. We start interpreting things our own way mm -hmm. and we go haywire because the Lord's thoughts are not the same, his ways are not the same as ours. Yep. So, I, I, um, I think that's right. I think that's right. One of the things that is very important in a, a, about our situation is that beginning in the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s, there were a number of uh, folks uh, in the seminary sometimes, sometimes priests themselves uh, and other folks as well who wanted to change the meaning of the Mass from being a sacrifice to being a community experience and community meal. Now, it does have that aspect of community. There's no doubt. But you don't find that by denying the sacrificial nature and once you start denying the sacrificial element of Mass, you then change your understanding of the priesthood. The priest is the one who is there to offer that sacrifice of the Mass in the person of Jesus Christ. That's not just some old-time theology. That's also found seven different places in the Vatican II documents and in multiple documents. In the document on the priesthood, which you expect, and the bishops, but also in the document on the liturgy and in the constitution of the church. And once you start moving the priest away from acting in the person of Christ. In fact, in many seminaries, that was not taught. You change the doctrine about the priest acting in persona Christi, that in the person of Christ, and then you change, uh, you, you undo lots of other doctrines. You have to stay faithful to the teachings of the church, exactly as this gentleman has pointed out. That's a corrective to some of the modern tendencies. We have an email here. Uh, Hello, Father Mitch. My cousin committed suicide in 1995 at age 27. He had been sexually abused by a priest as a youth and never fully recovered emotionally from that ordeal. The priest was transferred from place to place when his proclivities became known by his superiors 
and his actions were covered up by the archdiocese for quite a few years, although eventually he was defrocked. The sister of the abuse victim is having a hard time getting past this trauma. Well, yeah, of course. Um, she currently attends a non-denominational Protestant church. She said she feels she's being called back to the Catholic Church. But every time she sees a priest on the altar, she wonders whether he is abusing someone. I told her that those thoughts are coming from Satan, and she recognizes that, but she can't seem to shake them. She also resents the fact that a personal apology has never been offered by the church to any member of her family, even though the archdiocese paid for her brother's funeral expenses. I recommend your book to her. I also recommended that she take this to confession or perhaps find a spiritual advisor who can help her through her difficulties. Do you have any advice that might assist her? She and the rest of her family have been gravely impacted by the actions of this sinful former priest, Mary. Mary, this, uh, this is something that horribly is not unique. Um, there have been a number of other other victims who have committed suicide. This breaks my heart, really makes me sad. And in many ways, I dedicated the, the work I did for this book and dedicated the book itself to those victims uh, and pray for them. Uh, this is something that is a horrible betrayal. And, you know, of course their hearts were broken. And I, I just find it uh, absolutely horrendous. One of the things I would also recommend, I, I, and to use the book, this book, Wheat and Tares, as a way to pray through this. We'll talk about that. Uh, in fact, the, the issue of suicide, I bring that up later on in this book. I think in the next chapter. Uh, but, you know, to, to use this as a way to pray through it. It's not just getting something as an idea in your head. It's coming to the sacred scripture to encounter Jesus Christ. Your friend, your cousin, um, who's a survivor, obviously loves our Lord very much. And she knows he loves her. And that's why she's gone to another church, but she also feels the drawback to the Catholic Church and to the sacraments. The, here would be the part that I would say is from the evil one, is to think that, well, I don't know if that priest up there has done this. Um, Partly, this can be counteracted with facts. Uh, if you look up at EWTN.com, I reviewed uh, and interviewed Bill Donahue about a book he wrote showing that the church has really changed this issue. And they, they have gotten over this, and the church is way ahead of most 
of the society in addressing child abuse. Way ahead. We had a lot to get over, to be sure. But the, the child sexual abuse is rampant in our country. I, I saw the movie last week, Sound of Freedom. I urge everybody to see that. You see how rampant it is. We're talking about, at this present time, something like 45 million slaves, most of whom are used for sex around the world. It's horrible. Children can be aborted or they can be used as sexual objects. And so this is something that is a problem. But overall, you know, the, the church is way ahead. And read Donahue's book on that. He comes at it from a sociology and psychology perspective. It may help to ease that fear. But you still need to constantly encounter Jesus Christ in your prayer. He's the one who can bring you the ultimate healing of, you know, knowing, you know, the, the pain because he was betrayed and he suffered so much himself. And be with him in that suffering. Focus on Christ crucified, which was the result of that betrayal. And see all the pain that you're going through as a, something that can be joined with Jesus on the cross. You don't bear it by yourself. You unite this difficulty with him. And the most important place you do that is not only your private prayer, but at Mass. Use the liturgy as a place to unite your pain over the loss of your brother with Jesus. And pray for your brother. And I'll be doing the same. Okay. Well, we need to take a little break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes with more of your questions and comments. So please stay with us. back and I want to invite you to join me tomorrow night Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will speak with Dr. Gilbert Lavoie who used the forensic sciences and is with a special attention to the Gospel of St. John as a way to get a better appreciation of the Shroud of Turin. It's really a good book and uh, something you can also use as a certain amount of meditation. Uh, I've been able to do that while praying my rosary, so it'll be a good discussion. All right, let's now go to a call. We have Florentino, who is from North Chicago. How are you, Florentino? I'm, I'm fine. I'm from California. Are you? 
Oh, you're not yeah. from North Chicago? No, California. Oh, well, okay. Well, stay safe out there, too. So what can, what can we do for you, Florentino? Well, I'm like, I'm a new, I'm a new Catholic. Uh, been coming to the Catholic Church for four years, and I, I, I don't know what's going on. I believe in the Eucharist, and my mm -hmm. question is this. I want to have an encounter with Jesus. I want to know that I'm saved. Yes. I want to, I want to, I want to go to heaven when I die. I go yep. to church. Nobody, nobody takes a Bible to church. There's no Bible study. So I'm really scared to death of my soul. I want to know Jesus. How do I do that? I'm, okay. I believe in the Eucharist. I believe in the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Florentino, let me ask you this. Do they have those uh, small missilettes or missiles at your church? Uh, no. You usually have yeah. them in the, in the uh, pew? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They, and see, one of the reasons Catholics tend not to bring their Bibles with them is because all the, the Bible readings are there for us to look at. So that's, oh. that's why. That, that's not as big a concern because uh, they can they have that right there with them if they want and most of the time people focus on what the the sermon's about but okay. here's something that uh you bring up that i think is a, a great point you mentioned for instance that there are no bible studies and you feel the need for that well here's something that i would ask you to do Start looking around in your parish for a few other people who also want to do a Bible study. And why don't you get one started? And, you know, there are a number of ways to do it. Uh, the books that I've been writing, I wrote them as Bible studies for Catholics to use. And you can start off with one of those, or there are other Bible studies out there that you can use. And get started with that. But it may well be that our Lord is putting this on your heart because he's asking you to be the one to initiate this. And that would be a good thing. So, you know, let take a look and maybe talk to the priest about how you can get a Bible study started, okay? Um, because I think that would be a very good thing. And see if there are other people around the parish who want to come and spend time in prayer and adoration using the scripture to help them in that. Check that out and see if the Lord's putting this on your heart, then don't take it as a, a chance to say, well, or, or, or indication, I need to go, but rather the Lord has called me to understand this. And I and the one he calls to get it started, not somebody else. That's oftentimes the way these things get going. So that would be my uh, recommendation. All right, now I have an uh, email from Tad. I don't know where he's from, but he says, Father Mitch, from what I have read and seen, it looks to me as if some bishops in parts of Europe, like France and Germany, are straying from tradition. And it troubles my soul. After the final day of the third meeting of the Synodal Assembly, it concluded with votes favoring draft texts 
calling for same-sex blessings and pro-LGBT redefinition of homosexuality and teaching materials, among other things. The a German cardinal, Gerhard Müller, said that they, that is, the progressive bishops, relativize the Catholic faith, but remain with their titles, cardinals, bishops, theology professors. But in reality, they don't believe what the church is saying. We see this in our own country as well. Please give me your opinion on this matter, Father. Well, I'm against <laughs> anybody who would, you know, stay in the priesthood and not hold what the Catholic Church teaches. You know, this is hypocrisy. And so we have to make sure that, uh, you know, we call the priests. Again, I would urge any of you to read a very old book by Cardinal Newman, now St. Cardinal Newman. Um, he wrote a book called The um, Arian Heresy, The Crisis of the Arian Heresy in the Fourth Century. And he writes there how it developed that 85% of the bishops at that time denied the divinity of Jesus. It was politically expedient. But it was the laity that called them back. And that's what we may have to do here. I, you know, this is something, it's foolishness. To, to teach contrary to it, not only because you're hip hypocritical, but also because the, these sins put immortal souls in danger and in many cases put their mortal bodies in danger by encouraging behaviors that will harm them. Like, say, with, uh, we talked some weeks ago about uh, transitioning to the other gender that'll shorten your life by 50%, you know. So this is both spiritual and physical. So we need to call back to the original faith. We have another question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? San Antonio, Texas. Good to have you here. Good. Always nice to have people from the Republic of Texas. What can we do for you? <laughs> so um, our question is, um, we hear Jesus referred to as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right, and that's in uh, Hebrews chapters six through 10. Yes, and so the question is, how does Melchizedek relate, if at all, to the Levite priests and then the priests that come after Jesus that he mm -hmm. ordains and us in our priesthood by baptism? Sure, first of all, the, uh, as Hebrews, well, to the Hebrews makes clear, the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Old Testament priesthood because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and all the tribes of Israel were genetically within him. So they're all paying tithes. This points out that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Old Testament uh, and secondly, that it's an eternal priesthood that is based on Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, Ata kohen al divrati makitzedek. 
that you are a priest for, uh, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so that's where that comes from. And that that's a, a psalm about the Messiah. As you see in the beginning, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand um, until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the most quoted uh, passage of the Bible uh, in, refer in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. And that's the kind of priesthood he has. He has the priesthood of Melchizedek that was promised in that prophetic messianic Psalm 110. And since that's the priesthood he has, it's the priesthood we have. Remember, Melchizedek offered bread and wine. Christ takes it up a notch by changing water, uh, 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 wine and bread into his body and his blood. So that's the transformation. This is the only priesthood Jesus has. So that's the one we receive in baptism. And then in a ministerial way, the, it's the priesthood that the ordained priests receive when they are ordained. So yeah, that's definitely our priesthood. And that's what we say in the ordination uh, ceremony for Catholic priests. All right, we also have to recognize that we're out of time. So I'll give you my priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, as always, we remind you that this network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you. Thank you.